Good to see everybody out. My name is Mike. I'm on staff here at the church. I have the great honor and privilege to share the Word of God with you today. Welcome to everybody who's joining us via the live stream. And I just want to say how glad I am to be here this morning. I uh, appreciated uh, the worship and, uh, and the praises that, that came forth from, uh, from the people of God, uh, including myself. And then the video from uh, Angela I thought was excellent. I mean, uh, that Angela, I got a little concerned with the pottery illustration because that was so good, I didn't want to have to follow it. I'm not sure the content of this sermon is going to rise to the quality of that illustration. And a big shout out to Evan who uh, does a lot of our video work. He spends a lot of time filming and editing and uh, we've certainly been putting him to work for the last uh, month or so, and he does an excellent job. So let's dive into the Word of God. We're in Romans, where we've been for a while now. We're going to finish up Romans chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, and you would stand, please, I will read from the ESV. going to read from verses 25 right through the end of the chapter. Word of God says this. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I would like my prayer to pick up right where Paul left off at the end of that chapter by praising you. By thanking you just for who you are. You are worthy. We sang about it, Lord. We mean that. You are so incredibly worthy. Lord, I thank you for your word in all its depth and richness and even complexity. And that is certainly the case with the text that's before us today. I thank you that you give me an opportunity to stand up amongst your people to hopefully faithfully articulate your word, to preach it, to preach it boldly yet humbly. 
Lord, I ask that you would really engage our minds here today. Uh, we have a, a lot of theology that is in front of us, and uh, I ask that you would take whatever might be cluttering up our minds that we brought in today and just set it aside so we can focus in on you and what it is you have to say to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> well, I was thinking a lot this week about a particular word, a word we're well familiar with, and the word is promise. I thought about the word promise, and it, it prompted a lot of questions in my mind. Should we make promises? Are promises good? Are they bad? Are there any potential hazards in making a promise to someone? What happens if we break that promise? What is the fallout from that? What happens if we keep the promise? What, what does that produce? All these questions were kind of ruminating in my mind. And so I did what many of us do when we have questions. I went to Google. And I Googled, should Christians make promises? And I didn't even get off the, the front page there, however many websites, seven or eight or so. There was multiple websites. And uh, for the I would say the majority of them all came to a similar conclusion. It was a very definitive answer to the question, should Christians make promises? And the answer was no. And I'll give you an example. BibleReasons.com, they were just so crystal clear right out the gate. I'll just quote to, to you what the article said, how it began. It said, Christians should not make promises at all. It doesn't matter if it's to God, our friends, or our children. Sometimes people make promises and they can't deliver. Or sometimes people just don't want to follow through when the time comes. And as you might suspect, uh, these, because I asked a Christian question, these articles, many of them, including BibleReasons.com, gave biblical support uh, for their conclusion. And they would quote biblical authors like James, who said, Who knows what tomorrow may bring? You ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And James also goes on to say, Let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And then they went on to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, which speaks about promises. Some translations use the word vow. And in uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 2, don't make rash promises, Ecclesiastes says, and don't be hasty in bringing matters before God. But because I love Ecclesiastes so much, I kept reading in chapter 5, and just a few verses later, it says this, when you make a promise to God, don't delay in following through. For God takes no pleasure in fools. Keep all the promises you make to him. It is better to say nothing than to make a promise and not keep it. And so these websites, again, just a sampling from the, the front page there of Google, they came to this conclusion that Christians should not make promises. And so we ought to test all things. I began to think about it. In case you're unaware, if you Google something, there's no guarantee that you're going to get truth from your search. All right? It is the internet. All right? So in case you're under that delusion, not everything you read on the internet is true. So I began to think about it, and I was like, okay, never make promises. And I thought about a young man 
who's engaged to be married. His wedding day comes. He's standing before his bride-to-be. Someone asks him, do you promise to be faithful to her all the days of your life? I don't think his response should be, yeah, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I'm not going to make any promises here. Who knows what tomorrow may bring? Something better might come along. I would say that marriage is over before it even begins. Now, I'll admit, some of this gets down to semantics. You know, you got promises, vows, oaths, swearing. I, I don't know. I, this is not, I'm not trying to really answer the question. I'm trying to get your brains moving this morning. It's early. It's the early service. We got to get our brains stimulated. We're going to need to use them today. So I, I do what I often do when I'm in my office right over there. I'm thinking these things through. I, since we have a large staff and people are always coming and going, I like poll people. I get a little estimate of like, what, what are the people on Sunday morning thinking by polling an individual? And I asked them, I said, should Christians make promises? Instead of going to Google, I went to a particular individual, professing believer, a good friend of mine. He answered my question with a question. And he said, why shouldn't we? And my answer was, well, if we do, we better be very careful. It is very easy to break those promises. And the way I see it, there's three factors that really come into play that, that, that cause us to break promises. And the three factors are this, are these. One, power. Two, knowledge. And three, goodness. Let me elaborate. And I'll use an example to help get the point through. Let's say <clears throat> you're a parent. You're getting ready to go to work. And you say to your child, you say, if you have a good day at school, you do all your work, get all your homework done, I promise when I get home from work, we'll go out to eat. We'll go over to Friendly's, get the super melt, the fries, chase that with an ice cream sundae. All right, that, that is my promise to you, son or daughter. So you head off to work. Day's going just fine. The boss comes in, though, and says, you're going to need to stay late tonight. He's not asking you. He's telling you. He's like, if you like your job here and you would like to continue to stay and receive a paycheck, I need you to stay late well past dinner time. So you better eat a big lunch. Now, you have a choice to make. You can either keep your job but you can't also keep your promise to your child. So you just broke that promise. Why? Because you lack power. It, there was a power greater than you, namely your boss, who influenced you such that the promise got broken. But let's say that's not the case. You don't have to work late that day. You go through the day as normal. You come home. Your child fulfilled their end of the deal, did all their homework, behaved at school, all that. And so you head out to Friendly's. And upon your arrival, you notice there's no cars in the parking lot. And the restaurant is dark. And you pull up to the front, and there's a sign on the door that says, sorry for any inconvenience, but we are closed due to a lack of staff. Which in the year 2022 isn't very far-fetched, right? I mean, this is very reasonable. Well, you just broke your promise to your child. They say, well, that's kind of harsh. 
Well, look at it from the kid's perspective, right? Kids aren't always the most rational, forgiving of God's creatures. Because what is your child going to say? But you what? You promised. Well, how was I supposed to know that the restaurant is closed? Well, with the prospect of a super melt fries on Sunday, your child is going to say, you should have known that, mom or dad. And in their mind, according to them, you broke your promise. So the third one I said was goodness. Better said, maybe lack thereof. Let's be real. There are people who make promises they never intend to keep. Not at all. This is the foundation on which scam artists and con men hone their craft. You do this, you send me a check for 500, I'll send you a check for 1,000. Once they get their 500, they're done. They never intended to follow through with that. But this doesn't happen just with scam artists and con men. This happens also in relationships. How do I know? Because there's a load of songs out there about this, right? Back in the 80s, my heyday, there was a band called Naked Eyes, had a hit called Promises, Promises. I'll sing a little of it for you. <laughs> you can't finish what you start. If this is love, it breaks my heart. You made me promises, promises, da -na 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 -na. you knew you'd never keep. Now, I know what you're thinking. Mike, why are you not on the worship team? I know, I know. Well, it's because Pastor Paul is sleeping on me. That's, that's really... I mean, sometimes you can't recognize talent when it's standing right in front of you. I even gave you the da-na-na-na-na, like a one-man band up here. But if we make promises, if you do make a promise, you need to be very careful. Why? You lack power, you lack knowledge, and be, be honest, you lack goodness, right? Well, what about God? Does God make promises? Oh, yeah. He makes lots of promises. What's the difference? There we go. All right, you guys preach this. Let's go. He's got the goods to back them up. Think about those three areas. Power. Does God have power? Is he potent? Yes, he's omnipotent or omnipotent. He has all power. Does he have knowledge? Omni-knowledge. He's omniscient, right? But what about goodness? We, we speak often about the omnipotence of God, the omniscience of God. You hear omnipresence. There's an omni that we often don't speak of that we need to. God is omnibenevolent. He's all good. There's no darkness within him, no shadows, no evil, only light and goodness. We say it's all good. God is the only thing that is all good. And that's the winning combination right there. That's the trifecta. You got all three. You got those three. You are a being who can make promises, but not just that, but follow through. Because you have that capability, it's in your character to do so, right? And you got to have that omnibenevolence, right? Because imagine a being that has all power and all knowledge, but is evil. That's a recipe for disaster right there. Thankfully, that is not our God. 
so we can take his promises to the bank. You and I, our mouths are writing checks that our humanity cannot cash. God, he's got the 24-karat gold of his divinity backing his promises. We got a bunch of lint in our pocket, basically. So we need this understanding as we make our way into Romans 11, or at least the tail end, I should say. What's Paul doing here? He's, he, this is the culmination of a line of reasoning. If you've been following for the last two weekends, Paul is doing what he often does. He poses a question, he answers it, and then he goes on to just provide layers of argumentation to support his answer. What was the question? It's at the very beginning of Romans 11.1. 1. Has God rejected his people, the Jews? And he answers it immediately with an emphatic, by no means, the strongest way possible to negate that. And then he goes on to build his case. So two weeks ago, Pastor Mike shared with us the first line of argumentation, which was what? There's a remnant. There's always a remnant. And Paul's like, look at me. I'm a Jew, so God couldn't have rejected his people. I've been brought in. I'm exhibit A. Then the next weekend, last weekend, Pastor Ben took us through verses 11 through 24, talking about the natural branches, unbelieving Israel, that were broken off from the olive tree. So that Gentiles like me, the wild olive shoots, could be grafted in. And that I ought not look down upon unbelieving Israel because God has granted me faith to believe. And that brings us to verse 23. And really, we're, we're looking at 25 and following, but you really need 23 and 24 because they set the table for the meal that is verses 25 and following. Let me read these to you. Verse 23. Uh, and even they, that, that's referring to the natural branches, that's Israel. If they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So there's two things going on here, and we got to understand both if we're going to really appreciate this text. All right. One is you have a group of unbelieving Israelites. You've got Israel who is rejecting God's plan of salvation, grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They're stiff-necked, disobedient, and contrary. That's what the Bible tells us. That's the one group over here. Over here, we have God who has made unalterable promises to this group over here. And he's not going to go back on them despite them being stubborn and stiff-necked. That's the tension of Romans 11. And I like how chapter 10 ended because it set us up perfectly for it. You see both of these truths contained in a single verse. Romans 10, 21. But of Israel, God says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary See, the God of Israel, the one and only true God, is a God of covenants. He's a God of promises. Now, the word covenant and promise, they're not exactly synonymous, but I think for our purposes here, when you hear covenant, you can think promise. Okay, and God has instituted many covenants throughout human history, starting with Adam. Adam. 
right? The Adamic covenant. And then shortly thereafter, it was Noah, right? But these were covenants with all of, of human, human beings. But then God says, I'm going to pick a particular group of people, and I'm going to raise up Abram, right? He's going to be the father of a great nation, and that nation is Israel. And he made certain promises to then Abram, who became Abraham, that there would be descendants. He would have descendants. But I'm old, and so is my wife. Yep, you're going to have a child. His name's Isaac. He's coming. I'm going to give you land. There's going to be a redeemer that's going to come through you. And by him, all nations will be blessed, all people. And I'm a recipient of that, and so are you. Because that Redeemer's name is Jesus Christ. So God has done that. But he's not done, though, with Israel. He's not finished with them. That's the key of what's going on here. And so with this Abrahamic covenant, there's two things we got to understand. One is it's unilateral, and the other is it's unconditional. Unilateral, meaning God, he initiates it. He, he started it. It wasn't Abram came to God with an idea, hey, why don't you make me the father of a great nation? No, God came to Abram. It, it's, it was him who started it. So it initiates with him. It's unilateral and it's unconditional. It's not dependent upon Abraham. God says, I started it, I'm gonna finish it. I will fulfill that which I started. So he's not asking for permission. This is something God is going to do. It's key. So we see the covenant, the actual covenant is in Genesis 12, but there's a depiction of it in Genesis chapter 15. And we see there the unconditional nature of the covenant. It's a little bit bizarre by our standards. You know, if you get into a covenant or a promise, we'll call them a contract, you know, a sort of agreement, we don't do this sort of thing. But back then, they, what they would do is they would kill animals separate those animals, place them on the ground, and if there was two people that were part of this covenant or this agreement, they would walk through the animals. And it's as if to say, if either one of us break this covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to us. It was very serious. That's, that's kind of what's going on there, the, the symbolism in all of that. If you remember Genesis 15, covenant between God and Abraham, or Abram, did they both walk through? They didn't. They didn't. God caused Abram to go to sleep. And so Abram never walked through. God did, symbolized through the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. God alone went through to say, this is me. This is on me. I'm taking this one on. Has not, Abraham, he's, he's asleep Okay, this is an unconditional covenant without Abraham's involvement. So it didn't depend upon his faithfulness or lack thereof. And, and God repeats this again to the offspring, the promised offspring, Isaac, tells Isaac, tells Jacob. And then all throughout the Old Testament, you see this being repeated over and over again, this promise. I just pulled one because this is so crystal clear. First Samuel chapter 12 Samuel said to the people, that would be the people of Israel, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Remember that. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. 
Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. I put a little star next to, you've done all this evil, and then another star with a line saying, for the Lord will not forsake his people. Those are the two things going on right there way back in 1 Samuel. And this is the tension that we have got to understand. So now we're ready for verse 25. Paul says, this is a mystery. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, that harkens back to what we learned last week. Don't be arrogant, all right? I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, this word mystery, mysterion in the Greek, it's not exactly like we understand a mystery. You know, my wife and I, we watch these dateline mysteries. Ooh, we got to try to figure this out. Do you do it? Do you not do it? All that stuff. It's not something for you to figure out. It is something you won't figure out. It's hidden, but it needs to be revealed. It only can be apprehended by faith through special revelation. That's what's meant there by a mystery. So Paul's going to go on and explain the mystery in part. He's not giving us all the details. If you come and you want, well, I want to know exactly what all Israel will be saved means. What, what is God going to do? How is he going to do it? When is it going to happen? You don't get that. We're just not told all the details, but we're given some. I would say we're given enough. And so what we're going to look at here is something that's been debated for a long time. There's various interpretations. Uh, this text has been studied, scrutinized, dissected, and debated for centuries. And there are various interpretations. What I want to do is I want to lay out really four for you. Lay out, there's, there's different nuances, so you could parse it differently. There might be more, but I'm going to give you the, the four main ones, and then I'll tell you where I land on it. And I hold this very loosely because there's smart people on both sides here. So, you know, I, I applied my pea brain to the text. I'll tell you where I landed, okay? But here's a little interesting tidbit. I don't agree with certain people throughout history. You may have heard of Augustine, Luther, Calvin, like, yeah, that gives me great pause that they say one thing, and I'm like, I don't think that's right. So, you, see, when you get into these theological debates, one of the errors I think we make is we think, well, I'm over here on this side. Uh, of course, I think I'm right, because that's why I hold that spot. And the rest of these people over here are a bunch of dum-dums. That is not the case. That is, th these things are complex. There are smart people, Jesus-loving people on both sides just trying to figure it out. And it's very, very complicated. You, you'll say, this is going to get pretty deep. And, and I, I would say that's probably true. But I want to tell you, we're only scratching the surface here. There are, whole, there are books written on this section of Scripture that go way deeper than what we're going to do for the next 20 minutes or so. So uh, I approach this text with a lot of fear and trembling, uh, but also with a lot of excitement and optimism. I think this is an optimistic text. It is, and I hope to show you that. So much of the debate centers around that phrase that, for me, just leaps off the page. All Israel will be saved. What does that mean? And that's really what's debated. Let's work backwards. We'll start with the word save there. That means what you think it means. Saved from hell. 
saved from the punishment due to each and every one of us because of our sin. And I think this is clear by the verse there at the end of verse 27, the, the prophecy quoted from Isaiah, when I take away their sins. So sometimes saved is not used in eternal salvation, but it is here. So that, that's what's in view with saved. People even argue over what does will be mean? You say, really? Yes, they do. Two main interpretations. A future will be saved sometime in the future or not necessarily exclusively in the future, something that is past, present, and future. I'll, I'll attempt to flesh that out here. I, I believe that this is a future thing. This will be is going to be in the future. And there's significance in the passage of time. Bears repeating. There's great significance in the passage of time because God is going to fulfill his promise to his people all the way to the end. And here's, here's how I arrive at that. The word until. Second part of verse 25. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And there's different ways to understand that. But to me, it seems to speak of a future event when that last wild olive shoot gets grafted in, God's going to do something with Israel. And we'll talk about what that is. So the fullness of the Gentiles, most people interpret that numerically. God has an elect group of people. That, that last sheep comes into the fold, that last Gentile, that's when this will happen in the future. That brings us to the heart of the controversy, all Israel. What in the world does that mean? What is all Israel? Let me give you the four interpretations or four views. All right? One, not so good. The other three are all acceptable. Let's start with the not so good one. I've given them names. I call the first one the every single Jew view. Some people believe all Israel is every ethnic Jew who has ever lived. Past, present, future, they will all be saved without qualifier, without Jesus, without faith, be just because of heritage, because they are a Jew. This is not a popular position, and I think you know why. If you've been following with us through Romans, this gets shot down time and time again. You're not saved by heritage, by circumcision, by adherence to the Mosaic law. There's many reasons why this is just, this can't be a good interpretation here. Uh, so we can kind of kick that one out uh, immediately. Second view would be the Israel of God view. This is kind of spiritualizing that term Israel, of, uh, the, all Israel. The Israel of God, meaning the people of God, the church, Jew and Gentile. Again, I don't share this view. This is Calvin's view. That's why I don't like to be called a Calvinist. I, I don't read a ton of Calvin. I hold to the five points, but I'm not a Calvinist. I'm a Christian. I don't agree with John Calvin in some of his theology and some of the things that he did if you have studied Calvin. So uh, just a, uh, I don't know, random thought I just thought I'd drop on you. But <clears throat> what's the deal breaker here? I, I think the deal breaker is the immediate context. So follow along here, all right? Verse 25, Israel there in verse 25 is clearly defined as ethnic Israel. Nobody argues that, right? Everybody agrees with that, right? But the question that we're talking about is, is in 26, what is Israel there, all Israel? But later in verse 26, talks about a deliverer, the, the quotation from Isaiah, clear reference to Jesus. 
And what does it say? Will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from whom? Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they. Who's the they? That's Jews. That's not Jews and Gentiles. Just follow it. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. I think that's interesting as well right there. The pronoun they is used twice. And just follow it through. If you follow it through logically, I think it's very hard to believe that, that the, it's Jew and Gentile there um, by, by the use of they speaks of Israel. Now, this is, this is the people who hold this view, they will acknowledge that what they're doing is, in verse 26, with all Israel, they're switching it. They think Paul is switching the term Israel there. It, they, they would include, no, it's Jew and Gentile. And, and that's just, for me, I think that's the greatest detractor because I, I think Paul is consistent, 25, 26, on through 28, and the, and the reference to Jacob in 27. So that's why I don't, I don't hold that view. Third view, the remnant view. This is all Jewish believers from within ethnic Israel will be saved throughout history. All right, so this view, they don't necessarily hold to the exclusively a future event. They would say that it's been that remnant. That's, that's all Israel is the remnant. They will be saved. And it's not limited to future. It's past, present, and future. And again, th this view has merit what I'm doing is I'm giving you uh, why I think that it's not the case. There are arguments, and they're good ones, that are made from the text to support them. Uh, I'm just going to do that with the view that I think it actually is, because we only have so much time here. But the reason I, I don't hold to this one is I don't know that that understanding, that it is merely, let's just say merely a remnant, it doesn't fit with the major thrust of the text. I think what Paul is doing is he's building do you not feel it? I, there's a palpability here that's going on. Is that the right word, palpability? I don't know. I sense something is happening that God, that God through Paul, is he's moving towards a climax. And to say merely a remnant seems rather anticlimactic, in my opinion. Okay, He's driving towards something grand, towards something glorious. Again, I think this is a very optimistic text. And the remnant view just doesn't seem to fit. And then the other reason was a single quote. You know, there's a reason we read these commentaries, because this guy I never heard of, Dr. Das, I don't know, he's written extensively on Pauline literature, on the Apostle Paul and Romans. He's, I looked at his bibliography, if that's what's even called. He's written a ton of books. He said this one thing as I was reading through, and I thought, that's really good. Let me share it with you. In, in regards to this remnant view, he said, the salvation of only a remnant of Israel, it isn't the solution. It is actually the problem that called forth chapters 9 through 11 in the first place. Right? Are you following this? The question is, the majority of the Jews have rejected Jesus. There's only a remnant believing. And that's why 9 through 11 are basically written to explain what's, what God is going at, doing with Israel. And so this doesn't really seem to do anything. It's just not really saying much. So the last view, this is where I land, the large-scale revival view. 
This view says all Israel is all ethnic Israel, Jews, not including Gentiles. It's a majority. It's a large mass. It's a huge revival within Israel that are going to come to Christ at some time in the future, either at or just before Jesus' return. You see why this would be a very optimistic thing. This is what I think is meant by all Israel will be saved. You say, well, man, it says all Israel. It's not every single Jew. In the Bible, the word all doesn't always mean all. Right? I mean, you know, that's uh, people who argue Reformed theology, that's the joke. Like, all doesn't mean all. Well, that's a strange way to say it, right? Well, think about it. When, When John was baptizing out in the Jordan, all Judea came out to see him. I mean, are nursing moms like, you know, come on, baby, let's go. It's all Judea. We all gotta watch John Baptist. No, it's just saying. A lot of Judea was there. So all doesn't, mean, doesn't necessitate every single human being. So here's the summary of why I think this is the, this is the interpretation. Because this takes place in the future. That's the optimistic view. This is coming. It's coming. And I would cite the word until as support. Ethnic Israel, as opposed to spiritual Israel, fits with the immediate context. You have consistency of the usage of the term Israel throughout the text. This large-scale revival, it fits with the overall tenor or the feel of what Paul's doing in chapter 11. He's got something big in mind. And we could even go back to verses 12 and 15 from last week where Paul is enthusiastic. He's talking about full inclusion, talking about Jews. He's talking about acceptance. What does he mean by that? And lastly, And and this is, to me, very convincing as well. Paul is about to burst forth in praise. He's about to let loose praises of who God is, what he is going to do, that he's going to fulfill his promises, and how unsearchable his ways are. And we've seen Paul, from the beginning of 9, he's got what? Great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Why? Because his brethren are not coming to Christ. And he's come now full circle. He's come, well, not full circle, but he's totally changed. And he's, he's letting, letting forth these praises. Why? Because his brethren will come to Christ in the future in mass. That is what God is going to do. And he explodes in praise. It's just the very prospect of it. So that's, that's my understanding. Now, I do want to say this. Uh, I know this is kind of heady, a lot of theology, you know, but you know, I, I hope you come to church and you, you don't merely want to you know, hear heartwarming stories that make you cry or touch your heart. I mean, those things can happen, and they do. But let's come prepared to think. And let's, you want to hear from God today, don't you? Yeah, I mean, you want to hear, you don't want to hear, hear me tell jokes or, or, you know, like, you know, just stories about puppy dogs. We want to hear the word of God, right? And sometimes it's hard to understand. And you got to take the time and labor through it. And we got to engage our mind. You know, some people just, well, I don't know what that says. And I'm not smart enough. And they just throw it off to the side. Don't do that. There's great helps available to us. If my wife wrote me a note, and I didn't quite know what she was saying, I don't know what she's saying, throw it on the ground. No, I'd be like, wait, wait, what does she mean by this? What? Why'd she use that word? 
does what she says over here fit with what's over there? Why? Because I love her, and I want to read her mind. I want to know what she's trying to communicate to me. And it's the same with God for the people of God. So we love God, yes, with all our heart, but what does he also say? Love him with all our mind. And sometimes you got to dive in. The text just doesn't, you got to think it through and really work at it. So let me read verses 28 through 32. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Boom, there it is. God is going to be faithful to his people. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, that's what we looked at last week. We've been grafted in, if we're a Gentile, grafted in through Israel's disobedience. Verse 31, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And I loved it last night where one of our elders, his dad came up, talked to me, and he had questions about it. We grabbed the Bible. We, we went through it. I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. He's, he's a preacher. Like, and he was like, hey, so how do you understand verse 32 there? Like, what's the all there? And, and we worked through it. And, you know, and, and all there, I understand, to be Jew and Gentile. Again, not all. You know, we, we, what did we learn in Romans 9? Some, some receive justice. There are those who get justice and those who get mercy. And so when he says all, he means Jew and Gentile alike, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I love that he was thinking through it and, and, and we were able to just chop it up in my seat over here after the service. That's, that's awesome. So before we get to this doxology, this expression of praise at the end, let me ask the question, why is this relevant to us? You might be sitting here and you're like me, you're a Gentile. You're like, well, I'm not a Jew. I, I don't even have a lot of Jewish friends. You know, wh what does this mean for me? Well, I, I would like to, to show you what it means for you. Because we're a lot like the Jews. Right there, you have been disobedient. I have been disobedient, just like them. We're a lot like them. I said earlier this year that I'm trying to do something, read through the uh, entire Bible in the calendar year for 2022, Genesis to Revelation. I'm going strong. I'm approaching uh, Ruth. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making my way through. I've been in Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges. And you know what I'm seeing in there? I'm seeing God do amazing things for a particular group of people, right? They get themselves into all sorts of Sticky situations, you know, I mean, that's putting it mildly, to be in slavery in Egypt and cry out to God, and they're, they're helpless. God raises up Moses, let my people go, and God delivers them out of bondage in Egypt. Then when it looks hopeless, when they're trapped, they look doomed for sure, God parts a Red Sea so that they can pass through on dry ground. And then after that, they're on their way to the promised land. They're hungry. What happens? Manna falls from the sky. They're thirsty. Water from a rock. This is God doing these things. He is delivering to his people when they cry out for him. 
And then what happens? They get delivered. You know the pattern. You know where I'm going here. How do they respond? Just give it a little time. They forget about them. When they ain't forgetting about them, they're complaining about them. Right to Moses. You know, poor Moses had to deal with all that. When they're not forgetting or complaining, they're setting up uh, false idols, you know, uh, taking gold, constructing golden calves, bowing down to that. And, and I'm, I'm reading through this. And I'm like, come on, guys. Do you not see how he just saved your sorry butts a couple pages before? You know, I'm not realizing like a couple hundred years have elapsed, right? And, and I'm like, how can, they, how can they be behaving like this? What am I doing? I'm doing the very thing Paul says not to do in chapter 11, right? Come on, guys, you've been rescued. You've been saved. You've been provided for. And then it hits me. I've been rescued. I've been saved. I have been provided for by this same God, my covenant God. When I was a slave to sin, he set me free, right? I, I, could, I couldn't set myself free. I'm helpless. He who the Son sets free will be free indeed. That's me. I wasn't in bondage in Egypt, but I was a slave to my sin, and I've been set free. Right? That's what God has done for me. I have no righteousness of my own. Here, take the righteousness of Christ, the very righteousness that you need, Mike, that you cannot produce on your own. Right? Bread from heaven doesn't fall down to feed my stomach. I get the bread of life. I don't get water out of a rock. I get living water. I've been provided for just as they have, maybe even more so. How do I respond? I forget about them, I complain, I rebel, just given enough time, disobedient, ungrateful, the whole nine. Pot, meat, kettle, basically. And it occurs to me as I'm reading through the Old Testament, I'm like, I, this is relevant for me. Some people don't dip into the Old Testament. You need to. And you see yourself in there. And here's the good news, though. How many gods are there? There is one God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he's faithful to the Jews based upon what? What I tell you, it's his character, it's his nature. Well, that doesn't change when it comes to you and I today in the church. When we're the same way, he's going to be faithful to us. He says, I started something in you, I'm gonna finish it. I'm gonna finish it. You're gonna walk away, you're gonna stray off the path, I'm gonna bring you back on. I'm not gonna let you go if you're truly his. He is the faithful God. So when we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. It's who he is. It's his character. And so that's where Paul just lets loose with an explosion of praise in verse 33. Oh, I love that. Oh, do you ever just want to just scream out? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, exclamation point. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? No one. Or who has, been, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Now, I grew up in a Catholic church. Uh, we didn't shout amen, all right? We didn't raise our hands. I came to Living Water, it was a real whoop, you know, people are raising their hands. I'm like, what are they reaching for? What's going on? 
I love the amens. I love when the, we get rowdy during the worship songs. Feel free to do it. Paul lets loose. Paul's kind of a button-up guy. Boy, boy he, he, lets, he takes the buttons off. I don't know. He, gets, he goes nuts right here. I love it. I love it. And there's a time we need to do that. You know, I, I'm trying to get more like that. I, I, got two, I got 30 years of Catholicism in me where we don't praise, we don't raise hands. But, I, you know, I'm, I kind of stay in my little box right here. I don't do this stuff. But I'm, I'm, I'm really like sometimes I'm shouting amen in, in here, okay? But notice, again, let me re- reiterate the point. Where does Paul come from? Beginning of nine, he's got great sorrow. He's got unceasing anguish in his heart. What has happened? By the end of 11, these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, what's happened? His sorrow is turned to joy. His anguish has turned to delight. And what caused it? What caused it? I would say he looked upon the Lord. He studied the Lord. He studied his ways. Yes, there's revelation. Sure, he's a scriptural writer, but he looked upon the Lord and studied him. What do we call the study of God? Theology. It was theology that drove him to doxology. All good theology, if if it's done right, is going to lead us to worship and praise known as doxology. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this outburst of praise from Paul comes immediately on the heels of some of the most intense theology in all the New Testament. Remember how we labored in 9 and 10 and 11, the richness, the thing, oh, my brain hurts. I don't, you know, we're, we're, we're really being challenged. It's no coincidence that after all that great theology, he burst forth in doxology. Let me quote the great lyrical theologian Shai Lin. This is my dude. Shai Lin said this. I can't say it better than him, so let me just quote him. He said, theology is the study of God. Doxology is is an expression of praise to God. All theology should ultimately lead to doxology. If theology doesn't lead to doxology, then we've actually missed the point of theology. You're just filling your head with information about God. Knowledge puffing up. So if you have theology without doxology, you have dead, cold orthodoxy. But on the other side, we have people who say, ah, forget theology. I just want to praise. But if we have doxology without theology, we actually have idolatry. Why? Because it's a random expression of praise, but it's not actually informed by the truth of who God is. You might be wilding out, praising, getting your worship on. You don't know who you're worshiping. It needs to be informed with theology. So God is concerned with both. He's concerned with an accurate understanding of him and that accurate understanding of him leading to a response of praise, adoration, and worship towards him. Well said, Shailen. So, so much more could be said. Uh, we need to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let, let me close with this. God is cooking something up. God is doing something, all right? Forget that Ramsey God or guy or whatever I called him God, that who's whatever the Ramsey Iron Chef. God is cooking. The master chef is at work here, all right? He's doing something. So, I love how this played out. I don't know if we planned this on the preaching schedule, but we're ending chapter 11 in Romans today. 
and we're going to take a pause on Romans because we, well, we got Lord's, uh, Palm Sunday and uh, Easter Sunday coming up. But next Saturday, we got the reptile guy coming, right? Jesse the reptile, you heard, he's coming. You may be a Sunday morning attender, you need to come out Saturday night. Invite your neighbors, your friends. It's going to be lizards and snakes. I'm, I'm just trying to not get choked out by a boa constrictor, all right? Just want to survive in advance, all right? Like March Madness, all right? I'll be in the back with a taser, all right? But I'll be here. So he's coming Saturday night. So you say, well, what are we going to do Sunday morning? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Pastor Ben has a free weekend, and he's going to preach a different text, but in many ways, what he's going to share, it expounds upon the way Romans 11 ends. Whereas I don't have time to get into all the, you know, who has known the mind of the Lord and all these things about unsearchable knowledge and judgments and inscrutable ways. Much of what he has to say will really expound upon that. So you need to come next week, Saturday night, and then you got to come back Sunday morning. You will be blessed. I told Pastor Ben I wouldn't oversell it, so I would just simply say it will be the single greatest sermon you've ever heard. <laughs> in your entire life, okay? I promise you. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that we can, it is fun to study your word. It is fun to look at how you interact with us as sinful creatures, your kindness, your goodness, your grace to us. Thank you for Living Water Community Church. Thank you for these people. I, I count it such a blessing to be a part of what you're doing here. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that it's, yes, it's complex. It's hard to understand, but it's, that's good. That's good. We like that. And so, Lord, I, I ask that we would turn our gaze towards you, that we would study you, that we would not be content with a surface-level Christianity that, well, you know, I got my sins forgiven. I, I, you know, I'm going to go to heaven when I die, and I'm good with that. I'm not going to dive in. I'm not going to pour into the Bible. I pray that's not the case, Lord, that we would dive deep to, to search out you and your ways, knowing we'll never plumb the depths of, a, of an infinite God in our finite minds, Lord. But I pray that we would do that. We would search you out through your word. Lord, and I thank you for what you're going to do for the nation of Israel. Whatever that looks like, whatever, however that goes down, Lord, thank you. This is an optimistic text, um, very much encouraged, and I can't wait until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Lord, will you make that happen? We know you will because you are faithful to make good on all your promises.